Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. There's a what does healthcare for all look like? There is a movement in the United States that is pushing for it. Personally, I think it should start with giving information on healthy steps we can all take so we can reclaim our health. Also, some kind of something to make US Congress undo all the things they've been doing and legislating that harm our health. Particularly, I'm talking about GMOs, which FDA scientists warned against, glyphosate, which uh, scientific studies shows is very harmful, along with EMF. They interfere with intercellular communication. They open up the blood-brain barrier so creepy crawlies can go in. They open up the gut, which is where a lot of our health starts. So we need, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with EMF. It's just why don't we do the 5G in a very safe way? rather than in a way that's going to make everybody, their health challenged. Because I believe Congress's actions will make us all very ill, which is making the demands in our health care system almost prohibitive. Anyway, back to a single-payer health system. One of the best systems in the world is the National Health Service in the UK. I have worked in that system as well as the U.S. system. So let's learn more about this. Today we have Dr. Lecky Asong who has just written a book, How to Stay Ahead of Your Doctor and Influence Your Health. His whole goal is to empower us so that we can take steps in our health rather than waiting on lines to get into the system. More about Dr. Song. He's a practicing GP uh, as a general practitioner whose experience has spanned many years in both rural and urban GP practices. He works as a locum GP. That means that he goes to various many places and fills in uh, needs as they occur. So he's worked in many different places in parts of the UK, worked in over 50 practices, including walk-in centers, urgent care centers, A&E, well, that's a counterpart of our emergency rooms or urgent care, and he's also worked in prisons, as have I. His pursuit of optimal health quest to improve chronic disease outcomes led him to undertake further training in functional lifestyle medicine. He owns and runs a health and wellness company called Gut Health Medic. You can find that www.guthealthmedic.co.uk. I mean, medic.co.uk. That's his website. He's a catalog of products from various industries which are on demand and available for licensing. He's also fluent in both French and Italian, and he, as I, love cooking, music, and dance. So, nous pouvons parler en français, mais je crois c'est meilleur en anglais. So, we'll speak in English for you. Anyway, welcome, Dr. Song. Hello. Thank you very much. Tell me what led you to write this book. Yeah, so essentially, um, many years ago, I came up with a board game idea, um, and it started off as instructions for the board game, a medical board game. And the more I wrote the instructions, the more 
the volume increased in size. And then a few maybe months afterwards, I thought about writing something basic for patients to understand because I was getting quite frustrated um, because what I knew or what I assumed patients knew wasn't what they knew. So I then had the idea to then write a book, How to Help Patients. And I then forgot about the board game book. And I, in a way, merged them together. And that's how I came up with the idea. So how do you think patients need help? Um, I think most importantly, uh, patients need help to be able to tell their story, which is giving a history. Um, I'm not sure how it is in America, but in England, a patient has got 10 minutes to explain what's wrong with them and the doctor to diagnose within those 10 minutes. So what I found is the first place to start was really how to give a history to a patient, but then I, to a doctor. But then I realized the best way is actually stay away from doctors and be healthy. So a big part of the book is trying to stay healthy to avoid the healthcare system in the first place. But then if you do come in contact with the healthcare system, which is probably going to happen, you should have the tools to be able to talk to a doctor to help a doctor reach a diagnosis. Because I think patients think doctors have a magic wand. They're able to look at them and based on very minimal amount of information, diagnose a disease. That's, what, that's the biggest misconception out there. But I'm trying to tell patients it's about what you tell the doctor and a doctor uses an almost a system to be able to come up with a diagnosis, which sometimes is correct and sometimes is not. Yeah, I mean, a diagnosis is just a label. You put a bunch of uh, symptoms together and uh, you it fits a little box, a procrastinian box, and you've got a label, T-shirt and a jacket, and you're a member of that club. But does that really help us? Isn't it more important to look at the underlying causes? What got the patient there? Absolutely. Um, um, and in fact, that happened to me because many years ago I developed gut symptoms and I saw lots of doctors that had no answer. Um, I was told I had IBS and nothing worked. And the more I looked into it, I realized the doctors, well, the specialists even, didn't have the answers. And that's how I got into functional medicine, really, because I started trying to investigate what actually causes symptoms. And even before, and even around this time or even before, in general practice, I realized at one point, all I was doing was treating the symptoms in a way. And I, I remember my early days in general practice, I asked my GP trainer, who's the doctor who supervises your clinical practice. And I asked him, I used to ask him all these questions, what caused the headaches and what caused the IBS and what caused the knee pain? And all the answers he gave me weren't really satisfactory. And he says, well, it just happened. And I used to tell patients that. Well, what caused my headaches? It just happens. What caused my arthritis? Well, you're old. What caused my sinus pain? Um, I always had an answer which was not convincing even to myself. And that's how I got into the whole, into the whole uh, functional medicine world and integrative medicine or lifestyle medicine, if you like. Uh-huh. But given most doctors don't think in this way, the best way is to really have a system to tackle 
the average patient, which is how to give a history to a doctor and understand your symptoms from a basic level, if you like. Yes, and your book goes in, and I mean, yeah, America, I mean, uh, allopathic, the Western model, kind of divides us into a bunch of moving parts, you know, as if they might not be interconnected. I mean, you talk about endocrine, hormone, reproductive, et cetera, and you go through each of these systems. But more important is these systems work together like a symphony and hopefully make good music together. So it's important that we just don't look at a part of the body, but the whole body. Absolutely. It's a systems-based approach. Um, in fact, in the fourth part of the book, um, I've got a chapter, I think, which says what to do if your doctor hasn't got the answers. And in that case, you need to use a whole different system to understand your symptoms. And it's a more systems-based approach. And you're correct. The, uh, the respiratory system works with the cardiovascular system, which works with the endocrine system. It's all connected. And I think sometimes if you divide the symptoms or the systems too much, then you can't have the answers because everyone's looking from their own point of view. So the cardiologist thinks you've got this problem, rheumatologist thinks you've got this problem, and the dermatologist thinks you have this problem. But actually, it could be inflammation linking all your symptoms and it's just one thing wrong with you. Usually it is inflammation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, it all kind of sing together in their own tune, working together. So what would you tell the patients and how to start to unravel this if they feel frustrated they're not getting the help from their GP? Yeah, so I'm a GP myself. So, okay, okay it's a tricky one. Uh, most patients don't really know about this way of thinking. Um, and so that's the first point. The second point is you've got 10 minutes to see the patient. I mean, of course, you can see them for 20 minutes or 15, but you can't do that for every patient. You just won't survive. So I think if the patient is ready, they might take on board some of the advice you give them. So I try to hone in on diets, for example. So I talk a lot about the elimination diet, you know, cut out dairy, gluten, and sugar, just the really basic stuff. And this really works in a huge category of patients. Um, and if they're receptive, my ideas, I might mention a few supplements that might help them uh, and point them towards the right direction. In some cases, they don't believe what you say and they want to see a specialist, in which case, by all means, I refer them to a specialist. And in most cases, they come back with no answers, but that's what they want. Okay. So... Um one thing you mentioned, the elimination diet, uh, look, give a little background on that because uh, as an increase in food sensitivities, not allergies, but, you know, difficulties with certain food. And I, the obvious reason for that to me is an increase in toxins in our environment because a toxin will bind to a protein and that will get any autoimmune reaction. And then that sets off the inflammation oxidative stress that we just talked about leading to a cascade of any chronic disease that happens to show up. So uh, with these food sensitivities, uh, because of all the you know toxins in our lifestyle, eating a particular food, although we might love it, might be causing us problems, and we might not see the symptom from up to three days. I mean, one clear symptom, I think David Asprey said that, you know, your pulse goes up right away, or you might have a yucky feeling in your stomach. But so the elimination diet, 
he mentioned was getting rid of a lot of the suspected problem foods and getting a good diet so you feel well, and then later introduce uh, a particular food at a time and waiting a week or so or four days to see if there's any reaction. So that's what he means by the elimination diet, something you can do on your own, because most problems do start on the gut, and that's one of Dr. Asong's specialties. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's really trial and error, but going for the usual suspects, if you like. You know, sugar is a big one, uh, gluten in some cases, and and dairy. And you take one at a time, and it's very easy to do. You just stop sugar, stop dairy, or and then see what happens to your symptoms. You get no bloating, if your headaches go, or your joint pain resolves. The case of really listening to your body, and that's a skill many patients aren't aware of. So you just tell them something very basic. Try to listen to your body. See what happens to your symptoms if you stop a particular food. And with time, they really get confident and they can do it. And I advise them to research on the internet, read as much as possible, because really the health is in their own hands. I'd like to, starting point for the listeners is sugar. I mean, for example, it might take, I don't know, 20 molecules of magnesium to digest one molecule of sugar, so it depletes us of our nutrients. It's known to trash our immune system, and it causes all sorts of inflammation. I mean, it raises the insulin response. You get insulin resistance, which gives more oxidative stress and inflammation. Sugar is a biggie that's causing a lot of problems in our health. Anyway, so let's get back to what's it like working for the NHS, and that's the National Health System in the UK. Yeah, the NHS uh, is an exciting time now. It's good working for the NHS, um, but COVID has changed everything, uh, as you know, uh, around the world. So normally, a typical GP would see, I'd say, 30 patients a day, uh, meaning face-to-face contact and maybe on an average of two home visits. So the GP goes out on a home visit to see patients. But these days, most GPs are carrying out telephone consultations. Uh, We're limiting face-to-face contact to obviously prevent spread of the virus. Um, So we're really prioritizing more I'd say urgent cases and routine cases are left till later until all of this uh, settles over. So we're still seeing the same amount of patients or maybe more uh, in primary care, but things are really changing on a day-to-day basis. Well, uh, let's look at what it was like before the virus. Uh, So um, what was a typical day like for a general practitioner working for the NHS? Yeah, so... A good question. So a typical day, a GP arrives, will start work maybe at 9, but most GPs will turn up at 7.30 or 8 and check their blood test results uh, from the day before or a few days before, um, action the letters from consultants, and then start seeing patients. And like I mentioned before, so a GP's day is divided into two sessions, is called. Uh, there's a morning session and an afternoon session, so most GPs work in that manner. The morning session runs for about two and a half hours to three hours, and within that period, uh, they see 15 patients, so on average, 
So the average GP would see 15 patients in the morning and 15 patients in the afternoon. Some GPs would see 18, some see 20. It all depends. So uh, 30 patients per day is an average. And so the first 15 patients are seen in the morning, and then they go off on a home visit. And the average number of home visits is two home visits. You can get four, you can get five even, but the average is two. So the GP will go out, see these patients, examine them and prescribe if needed, come back to base, and then start the afternoon surgery or session maybe two hours after and see another 15 patients and then finish two to three hours afterwards. And within that period or after surgery, they could continue uh, checking blood test results and looking at letters from consultants and actioning something called tasks, which are really messages or things to be done sent by staff members or midwives or health visitors. The GP would get lots of messages throughout the day, and that's the time to check your tasks. And then hopefully they go back home in time, but no one goes back home in time because the amount of work is quite heavy. Um, that sounds quite stressful. Well, what time does the average GP leave the office? Good question. Um, probably 6 or 6.30, but I've gone home at 9, 9.30. It all varies, but the average, I would say, maybe 6, probably, or 6.30. Sounds very stressful. It is stressful, and, and that's the job. That's the... I would say a typical, an easy day, uh, if you like. Um, so you'd have something called an on-call GP. So this is the GP who takes all phone calls throughout the day. Because remember, primary care, which is GPs, work with secondary care, which is hospitals. So if, for example, a patient were admitted to hospital and the doctors needed some information about the patient, they would phone the primary care GP practice who answered the, the phone call. So you have an on-call GP. It's almost like a floating GP within the practice who answers, who takes all these calls from the other doctors in the hospital, from midwives in the community, from social workers, from the police, from insurance companies. The list goes on. So typically an on-call doctor has a quite a heavy day most of the time. They're working alongside the other doctors in the practice. You mentioned that the GP does surgery. Tell me what kind of surgery, just kind of minor surgery or what kind of surgery? Oh, sorry. The word surgery just means uh, being patient. It doesn't mean in the operational sense like a surgeon. Oh, I love the difference. Yeah, so in England, yeah we call it surgery in England. It's not really surgery. <laughs> I love the differences in words uh, across the pond. You wouldn't believe some of the difficulties I got into by using our words over there. Okay, so what is the role of the GP in the NHS? Is it kind of like the facilitator, the you know, the contact man, uh, orchestrator of the whole system? Yeah. Um, so the way the system is set up is slightly different to maybe European countries. So like we get patients from all different uh, different parts of Europe: Poland, Hungary. Russia, and they get frustrated with the system because I think in these countries, you can turn up and just be a specialist. Uh, you have specialists 
in the high street, if you like, in the communities that can go up to a gynecologist or a psychiatrist in in the high street. They have um, a practice there, but you can't really do that in England because the GP is the first point of contact in England. So a patient comes to see you with symptoms, maybe uh, maybe joint pain, back pain. You examine them and you hopefully prescribe for them. If if the pain is getting no better, the symptoms are still present, then you can refer them to a secondary care doctor. So if a patient had a suspected uh, prolapse, for example, causing severe symptoms to their back, I could refer them to a spinal surgeon in hospital. So they can't see a spinal surgeon directly. They go through a GP. So the GP is the first point of contact for all patients in most cases. And how long might they wait for seeing that specialist? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it could be anything from a month to six months to seven months. It could be anything. It depends on how long the waiting lists are. I remember last year, the waiting list for dermatology was nine months, I think. And at one point, uh, there was just no waiting list because it was just too long. So we're just advising patients to wait until the waiting list got a bit shorter. But if the patient had suspected cancer, for example, there's something called a two-week wait referral. So you refer the patient to be seen within two weeks. So that's quite quick. Well, I have worked in the NHS system. It took six years for them to approve my credentials. I mean, they even wanted referral, I mean, evaluations from decades ago and school evaluations and everything that I couldn't even imagine. But what I've noticed working in the NHS, I was working in a hospital and I put in a consult for a neurologist to come see my patient. In the U.S., these consults are done that day or the next day. Two months later, and we were not even on the radar of the neurologist and he worked in the same hospital. That was an incredibly long wait. Then I had another patient who had a brain bleed, and he was waiting over a year for surgery. And in the meantime, he lost use of one of his eyes and his hand. And I also got an article today in my email that Canadians have, uh, you know, to see a specialist, you know, wait like uh, 20 weeks, whereas in the U.S. it's, you know, less, usually less than four weeks. And this is before COVID-19. So... Uh, these waiting lists, uh, that seems to be, I mean, I guess when you're treating everybody, you have to ration services, and this is what happens. Were you talking about the NHS, the long waiting list? I thought you meant America. Well, no, 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 no. I was talking about the NHS, because as I said, right. in the U.S., I put in a neurology consult. They're seeing that day, and if it's late in the day, it's oh, next it's not, it, we don't have to wait two months before they even re- realize we're on the list. And then I was citing data from Canada, I just got this morning in an email, that they're waiting 20 oh, weeks. Wow, that's long. Yeah, well, I mean, so, um, you know, and then this one patient I had in the NHS was waiting over a year for surgery. Uh, I, you know, I guess that's just what happens. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the healthcare system is completely different. Um, and it depends from it depends on from region to region. Some regions are quite quicker, some are slower. But yeah, that's a, as a national health service is is a bit different to a paid service or insurance based system like America. Yeah. 
that makes it even more important that the patient take uh, his own steps to improve his health. But I've seen a lot of things that are really good in England. I mean, um, well, you know, I worked on a psychiatric unit, and in the U.S., like in about a day or two, if a patient's somewhat stabilized, we discharged them. In the U.K., we kept them for months because they were waiting for a good disposition. And what I really was impressed with, for the autistic patients, they get them their own apartments, and then either a one-to-one person that's there 24 hours a day or a two-person-on-one which is very humane, we probably put them in some institution somewhere in the U.S., and well, we, uh, which is, I mean, the U.K. system certainly sounds kinder, and uh, maybe it's even less expensive than what we do in the U.S. Anyway, tell us more about the NHS system, and what would you recommend to the United States should we uh, do uh, one, a single-payer system? <laughs> I'm not sure I know that much about the American system, um, I think they all have the advantages and disadvantages. Um, like you mentioned before, the waiting list in America seems shorter compared to the longer waiting list in England. And I think the disadvantage of the English system or the NHS is some colleagues muse about it and say it's called free at the point of abuse uh, because you're not really paying uh, to access the NHS. So Patients come with trivial, or they can present very trivial complaints, uh, like I've got an itchy eye for one day, I had a cough for two minutes, uh, diarrhea for one day. So it's, it's just a phone call away to book an appointment. So they take advantage of it, if you like, um, and they come with whatever symptom they have without doing the minimum they could do, potentially do. Um, so in a way, is, is a, quite reliant on, on a doctor's knowledge and a doctor's expertise, which sometimes is quite frustrating, especially when the patients really need it, sometimes have difficulty accessing it, because the ones that don't need it have clogged the system. So it's a very I, difficult balance to maintain. I think that's human nature. I mean, uh, we can get a symptom and it could worry us greatly. And it could actually be something because I spoke to some people that they had a flickering in their eye and they kept going to the GP in the UK and the the response was, no, that's nothing. And then the person stroked and had a lost vision of that eye. But, you know, so, I mean, the, I mean, it's normal to have, to have that. I mean, do you, you, what we've got is like uh, kind of screeners or triage in some cases. You call and talk to somebody about your symptoms before you make an appointment, and that person might give you advice over the phone and might sort out some of the uh, less uh, concerning issues. Also, an emergency room, or like your A&E, we can go into any time, and many people who aren't insured use the emergency room as their health care provider. Yeah, absolutely. We have the same system here. Uh, we have the NHS 111 uh, number. So pa- patients typically call that number and someone, the caller, asks them a few questions. And I think they're using an algorithm uh, to grade their symptoms. And they might give them reassurance, uh, advice over the phone, or they might say book an appointment with your GP. But I think in some cases, the call handlers in the NHS 111 haven't really got medical training. So 
most of the time, probably, they would say, book an appointment with your GP. So you start off calling 111, and then you end up with your GP. Uh, because everyone is scared of litigation. So the easiest thing, the easiest decision to take is book an appointment with your GP. So, again, some GPs get frustrated. This is the case. And in some cases, in fact, 111 are able to book a patient directly into a GP's uh, list in some cases. So uh, that's another thing. Well, that's also human nature because the adverse effects, if you make the wrong decision, could be quite dramatic. I, we have the same problem here. Yeah. I work in an emergency room. And the police, you know, there's if any concern, they bring them in. And we kind of look at some of them and say, hmm, you know, we, you know, we can't blame the people for doing that because it's just, you know, because people want to be safe and they don't want to take a lot of risk and something that they're not that aware of. So that's just part of any system, I suspect. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um that's absolutely true. And I, and I think that's why the best way is to really empower your own health. So you're not depending on decisions based on algorithm or uh, based on a diagnosis done in 10 minutes, which could be uh, prone with errors, you see. Because if you think about it, if a GP sees 40 patients a day or 30 patients a day, uh, GPs are only human. You are going to make mistakes uh, at some point. Um, and again, you can't really blame the doctor. If they're seeing so many patients, they get brain fatigue and tiredness breeds mistakes. And if that happens, then your health could suffer. Uh, and that's why if you empower your own health, have a system to give a history, able to listen to your own body, know a bit of medical um, medical knowledge, then in a way you stand an advantage and you can help your doctor make the right diagnosis. Because if you depend entirely on the doctor, then mistakes could occur. I think you're less litigious in your country, too. I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, here, I mean, I think the doctors are seen as having deep pockets and, you know, and we're very litigious. I think that's one of the reasons some of the medications, for example, clozapine is a lot cheaper in Europe than here because we know there's going to be adverse effects and we know people are going to sue. So they jack up the price accordingly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think America is definitely more litigious than England. Um, but it's quite common now. Um, it's, it's, it's increasing. It's becoming a bit like America, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think so. I'm not sure to what degree, but, um, yeah, that's definitely happening. Unfortunately, we do tend to export some of our less desirable traits. Um, is there a move toward privatization? I mean, are there private practices that people can go to to supplement the system? Yeah, uh, good question. They are. Um, so GPs are don't really work for the NHS. GPs treat NHS patients. So people don't understand this basic difference. So hospital doctors are employees of the National Health Service. They get a salary. So every month they get a salary. They're paid by the National Health Service. Now, GPs are paid slightly differently. Uh, they get paid per patient. 
as well as other factors involved. So it's an arrangement between the GPs and the National Health Service. And the arrangement is they treat NHS patients and then the NHS reimburses them for the treatment. So they give a fee per patient. And like I said before, in addition to other factors, so they get a, a, a certain amount of money. The GP then employs staff like nurses and other doctors and, uh, and pay the bills, pay the mortgage on the building. And then the amount of money they've got left over, they pay themselves. So, yeah, they are the, the, back to the private practice. They are some private practices which don't treat NHS patients per se. You pay directly to the doctor or to the practice. Those exist. A lot of them more, I think, in London. Um, because that's where most of the money is. Um, but there are private practices in other parts of the country as well. But with technology now, we've got lots of services, online services. And um, so, yeah, we've got lots of online services where patients can access with a smartphone and have consultations, maybe through Skype or other uh, visual uh, technological methods. And those are getting quite popular, uh, actually, because patients are getting frustrated. They can't get through to book an appointment with their GPs. So they're now resorting to these online uh, systems. Is the NHS uh, contracting out the private companies for some of their services or, you know, equipment or whatever? Uh, yeah, they've always done that since the 80s. I think that started with uh, cleaning services in hospital with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, so the cleaning services were privatized. And then with time, other services were. So some hospitals uh, are privately owned hospitals that would treat NHS patients and then get a fee for that. That was to increase capacity. So, yeah, there is privatization to different degrees. But it's not my expertise, but yeah, there is. But yeah, certainly with the system you just described, that can explain the 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 tendency to want to book a lot of patients and you know, like a ten minute appointment because of the system for reimbursement. Uh, you know, I mean, but the, do you get a reward for patients staying well? Yes, absolutely. Um, so. We've got something called QUAF, which is Quality and Outcomes Framework. So I'll give you an example. If a patient is a non-smoker, you can get a point for that. If a patient's blood pressure, or it comes in, the, in this form, they might say 90% of patients should have a blood pressure within target. And if 90% of your target list have a satisfactory blood pressure, then you get a certain sum of money. So you are rewarded by these positive health outcomes. And if you add all of that together, and you might have things like, um, yeah, so smoking cessation, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, vaccine uptake, percentage of people who have been vaccinated, and things like that. And at the end of it, you get your money bills up, and then you get a bit more money. So how is the COVID virus uh, impact? Thing, this series. Obviously, like I mean, our, we're preparing for the surge and hoping to flatten the curve. I work in an emergency room, and you we're know, kind of all kind of learning as we go. Patients come in and have it, and we're exposed, etc. Obviously, as you said, less important items, you know, elective surgeries, etc., will be postponed like they are here. 
uh, obviously we're going to use more telemedicine so we can talk to the patient from our living room. But what other impacts are you seeing from the COVID-19 virus? Um, yeah, so no face-to-face contact, like I said. Um, most things over the phone. Um, yeah, technology is really booming now. Patients are, some are doing uh, Skype consultations, some have other uh, telemedicine software which they're uh, consulting with. Patients are sending pictures via email. Uh, so you know, it's a positive thing in a way in terms of technology. Um, yeah, so recently I've seen lots of rashes where the patients send pictures from their smartphone and I can diagnose it just from uh, looking at the picture. Um, yeah, so from that point, technology is, is gradually seeping its way into the NHS, which wasn't that, it wasn't the NHS's forte initially, I would say. Um, and then, yeah, we've got hospitals like the Nightingale in London, which is taking care of the COVID patients. Um, we've also got something called Hub, where suspected COVID-19 patients are swabbed and seen. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of change there. Yeah, I noticed that in our emergency room, initially we were gowning up and looked like spacemen going into the room to interview the patient. Now we can do it by uh, you know, an iPad from another room. So that's interesting. Now, I noticed Boris Johnson had the virus. Did they treat him with chloroquine? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, I'm not sure. What, I don't think it. I don't think it was hydrochloroquine, or at least the papers didn't say it. So I don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'm glad he's better. I mean, I've seen some very interesting, supportive things on the internet. So anyway, do you in England is there a use of um, uh, complementary medicine and alternative approaches? Uh, yeah. Um, some. Um yeah, some practitioners are quite, some GPs are quite into it. Functional medicine is really growing in England. And we also have uh, the College of Medicine. Uh, they do integrative medicine. So some doctors are now training in, in different types of, of uh, different modalities of care, maybe. Uh, so it is growing, I think. I think it's the future now. Because many patients are quite informed, I would say, you know, due to the internet and lots of books out there. And, and I think questions are demanding answers. And if you're a curious patient demanding answers, then you inevitably end up in complementary medicine, I think. Yeah, we've moved that way, too. We have a, established a board of integrative medicine, and I'm boarded in integrative medicine. But um, do most doctors believe in complementary medicine? I would say no. I don't think many believe. They keep saying no evidence doesn't work. And I think that's a spontaneous thing to say uh, because they don't understand the intricacies of complementary medicine. So what they don't understand, they just dismiss. Unfortunately, that's just the reaction. Um, I remember telling a friend of mine, if, uh, maybe about two years ago, oh, I'm reading about this herb, and he says, oh, what are you wasting your time for? They don't work. And there's no evidence. I said, there is evidence. And it was actually turmeric, which has the most amount uh-huh. of evidence, probably. And I said, there are papers. And interestingly enough, I think it was about a week after, there was a a program on Radio 4 here in England, and a patient had cleared their cancer taking turmeric. And 
the patient's consultant. Uh, I think it was breast cancer. The patient's consultant was quite surprised and came on the program as well. So I mentioned to that friend to, have, to, to listen to this program and, and see. Well, are you facing censorship? For example, my film, The Big Secret, uh, was censored by Congressman Adam Schiff, taken off Amazon Prime. My agent got it on Vimeo Prime. It's still out there, but really heavily censored. And also... Uh, we had a, a video which talked about natural health uh, approaches uh, yanked from YouTube, and they're burying information, uh, as I read, about genetically modified foods and alternative approaches to cancer. I mean, it's, are you facing that same censorship that's preventing patients from getting information? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I, well, I haven't personally faced, uh, faced it. It might be going on, but I'm not sure. I don't really know of any personal cases, any cases. So I've probably read up about it, but um, no. Well, there's a, uh, I, I, there's a lot of it going on here. <clears throat> I mean, uh, certain groups, uh, anything they say will be taken off. Um, people questioning the contribution of 5G and making reaction to the virus worse. Uh, they're being censored. Uh, uh, it's uh, something that's quite concerning going on over here. And, you know, if it's blocked here, it's going to be blocked on the Internet everywhere. Yeah, I think from my understanding, I think the wording, I think if you say something can cure COVID-19 or yeah, a dangerous. supplement can cure something, then it's different. But um, I, mean, I wrote an article about how to boost your immune system um, and talks about vitamin C, vitamin D, and which is how to boost your immune system. It's not really curing COVID, but COVID is an infection. If you boost your immune system, then you can protect yourself from lots of infections. So, yeah, I think the way one words it as well as a contributory factor. Well, tell us some of the ways to boost the immune system so we could have some protection against various viruses and chronic illnesses. Yeah, so I think the first, about 80% of the immune system is in the gut. So I think eating healthy food is quite important. So green leafy vegetables, high in minerals and vitamins, uh, cruciferous vegetables helps with detoxification. If you start there and, and cut out the junk food, Sugar, as we know, can reduce the uh, the actual uh, functioning of the white blood cells. So if you cut out sugar, eat a healthy diet, green leafy vegetables, and then even probiotics, I think those are very important uh, to boost the immune system. And then you've got vitamin C, very good uh, a vitamin for the immune system. Vitamin D as well, especially now. Lots of theories about low vitamin D uh, resulting to COVID. I mean, it's not proven yet. But um, the Italians are looking into something like that. Um, so well, I, I can make indeed. a comment on that. A colleague of mine, uh, William Grant, who's been on this show, has done over 300 articles, and he came up with a recent article on the impact of vitamin D helping with the virus. Of course, um, I mean, vitamin D will help with everything because it helps with oxidative stress. It helps with inflammation. It helps with gut health. <clears throat> so whatever the contributing causes are to any particular illness, vitamin D can help on all those pathways. But he has come out with a recent article. I can send it to you. All right. Yeah, because vitamin D is really a hormone. So he has a broad profile. Um, 
Yeah, so Steve, D, he's got Zinc as well. I've read some things that uh, zinc, if you can get it into the cell, and that's some people postulate the chloroquine can help that. But anyway, zinc getting into the cell can really attack the viral rip- replication process. So zinc is an important one. Yeah, zinc is so important. Um, and I think even the adaptogenic herbs, some of them can help because we're all stressed now. And if you try to reduce the stress and reduce cortisol, then that in a way indirectly could boost your immune system. So some of them uh, are worth considering. Okay. And what other advice do you have for people that are concerned about uh, contacting the COVID-19 virus? Uh, yes, yeah, so social distancing, which the government has uh, outlined, uh, washing your hands rigorously. Um, and, yeah, I think those are the two main things, and boosting your immune system. Okay. Um, so what approach do you use with your patients? Uh, approach to what specifically? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, do you, do you use the complementary approach with your patients? Do you use the functional medicine lifestyle approach? Yeah, so um, when I see a patient, um, I can tell within a few minutes uh, if conventional medicine is the way forward or complementary medicine is the way forward. Because I think they're mutually exclu- they're not mutually exclusive. They work together. So I don't think conventional medicine is bad at all. Um, if a patient has for, exa- has, for example, strange aches and pains and gut issues and rashes and you know, feeling low, then I sort of think, okay, this is inflammation, and I go down the lifestyle medicine of diets and maybe some probiotics and stuff like that. But if they have a sore throat and a chest infection, and the chest, I listen to the chest, they have an infection, I'll give them antibiotics. Um, yeah, they had, for example, diabetes. I'll go down the lifestyle route, you know, try to reduce the amount of processed carbs, you know, clean up your diet. But in some cases, it just doesn't work and patients are not motivated enough, in which case I might prescribe metformin or something like that to help them. So I kind of pick and choose and the patient's got to be ready and you've really got 10 minutes. So you've got to be smart about it. Uh, You can't convert a patient over 10 minutes. So you've got to do what's best for the patient at that that moment. So even if I prescribe, I tell them about diet, look, this tablet will help you, but try to improve your diet and try to exercise, try to meditate and all of this stuff. And sometimes it does work. Sometimes they listen. Um, You say patients being smart about it. What advice can you give to the patients so they can be smart about how to uh, use the 10 minutes with their doctor to maximum benefit? Yeah, so I actually wrote an article about that uh, today. Uh, it's a short mnemonic. It's called Socrates. So it's a way of organizing your symptoms so your doctor can diagnose very easily. So the S is for sight. So where is the pain or where is the symptom? O is for onset. When did it start? Uh, that's very important. Patients tend to stay a while. I've had it for a bit. But if onset should really be specific. Is it a few days, a few months? Is it yesterday? So O is for onset, uh, C is for character. So how is the pain? How is the symptom? Does your abdominal pain come and go? Is it uh, sharp? Is it dull? And you've got R for radiation. So does the pain remain there? Does it go down your limbs? Does it go up your neck? 
And then the other A is for associated symptoms. When you get the pain or you get the headache, you get nauseous, uh, you get diarrhea with it. And then T is timing. Uh, does it come and go or is it there all the time? Then you've got E, which is exacerbating symptoms. Is it worse when you lie down? Is it better when you stand? And then the last S is a score. So on a score of 1 to 10, how would you rate the pain or is it quite bad? 10 is childbirth and 1 is mild pain. So having that framework is very important. So within 10 minutes, within the first two minutes, if you said that to a doctor, they'd be able to get to the bottom of or get a diagnosis at least based on that after asking a few more questions. That sounds so smart to have it organized, bullet form, boom, here it is. <clears throat> and so you can get to the point and provide more help. And we only have about three minutes left. So what extra uh, advice would you like to give to the listeners? What would you like to say to them? Um, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, are you open to emails, Skyping? Uh, what, what else would you like to have our listeners hear? Yeah, so uh, I'll just say, during this pandemic, uh, I advise everyone to use the time productively and not dwell on, ne- on a negative mindset. Because I think the danger is one might almost give up and think, well, I've got nothing to do, I'm stuck at home. So I advise everyone to try to be productive, try to eat a healthy diet because many people are going to gain weight after all of this because they're comfort eating or they're eating all the time because they're bored. So try to meditate, try to exercise as much as you can, uh, really be particular about your diet, and at the end of it, you, you, you'd come out of it in, in a positive way. Yeah, you can get in touch with me at www.gut healthmedic.co.uk or I'm on Instagram at Dr. Leke as L-E-K-E a song A-S-O-N-G Sounds great and I'm a great believer in making positive use out of this time that we can sit at home we can reflect and you know if there's things that are worrying us we can you know figure out how to you know, make the world better and help us in our path. Okay. Um, any last words? Uh, yeah, so stay healthy and uh, get in touch if you have any questions at all. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. So there, uh, listeners, you have some information on the UK system and that is in uh, Britain, United Kingdom, and, uh, and you can compare it to systems in other parts of the world. And, you know, as he says, do your own research, get some information. You can share it with your doctor and together come up with a plan for maintaining good health. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.